Now streaming, the Netflix and Swill podcast. Hello, me, my homies. Welcome to Netflix and Swill, your source for Netflix news, reviews, and booze. I am Dan, and I am by myself. Uh, Caleb is caught in a snowstorm in Pennsylvania. Well, not a snowstorm, but a snowstorm snowed him in, so technically a snowstorm. Uh, it, also, apparently too cold for salt to work, which is, you know, fantastic way of removing ice is uh, if it can't remove ice because it's too cold top-tier chemical construction from everybody involved in our road services. Uh, but yes, it's going to be just me. I might get Ashley to talk about the other things later. We'll see. We'll see how I feel. Uh, but I hope you're all doing well. I hope you all had a good holiday, uh, depending on what holiday you s- celebrate. Uh, doesn't really depend on what holiday you celebrate. I guess it's just whatever holiday you celebrate. I hope it was good. Uh, my holiday, I got a gin-making kit from my soon-to-be father-in-law. And uh, I have already created two gin batches. They're both ready to go. They should be ready to go about the same time. Uh, I just have to strain them tonight and then let them sit in the fridge. Or actually, no, strain them tomorrow. Let them sit in the fridge overnight, and they should be ready to go. Very excited to try them out. Uh, very intrigued by this whole process to figure out how to make my own gin, and that way people may actually like gin if, you know, I make it. But early days, two batches, let's see how it goes with the uh, set recipes that were provided to me by doyourgin.com, and apparently they do, like, a bunch of other stuff, like you can do your own vodka, your own whiskey. Uh, I think those are the only three, but I didn't really look too, too hard. I just wanted to see if they had, like, other kind of gin-style recipes available. They didn't. So uh, I guess I'm just going to do the ones that are on the card and then figure out how to acquire new supplies for me to be able to do more gin. Because uh, they provide you like three what they call test tubes. They're not actually like real like science test tubes. They're just like uh, corked, like like finger length. And actually like they're, they're about the size of my middle finger uh, full of like juniper berries, cardamom pods, or dried orange peels, lavender, coriander seeds, all stuff I didn't know was in gin, so that's something I'm learning about gin now is, you know, everything that goes into the process. But uh, they only give you three tubes of juniper berries, which is the primary ingredient for gin, uh, and I'm through all of them already. So I need to go out and find juniper berries somewhere. Don't know where they are. Apparently, according to Ashley, they're not at the local supermarket. I wonder if I have to, you know, run around town figuring out where these are or just, unfortunately, order them from Amazon instead of supporting local stores. Is what it is. Let me see what else. He also got me a, a gin that I'll be talking about in What's Your Swill. But other than that, that's that's about all I got. My mom got me a uh, couple pairs of socks, as she normally does, because she's Linda. Uh, and a $50 Target gift card, as well as other stuff. But uh, thank you, Mom. You're appreciated. Don't know what we're going to use the Target gift card on, but we're going to use it on something. And with that, let's get into What's Your Swill? Can we please get some alcohol into my mouth? He hates these cans! Stay away from the cans! All right, for this week's What's Your Swill, I have... The Drum Shambo Slow Distilled Gunpowder Irish Gin. It's 43% alcohol by volume from the mind of P.J. Rigney. From the curious mind of P.J. Rigney. Okay, Uh, sounds like a movie. Here at the edge of a lake in a shed in a small Irish town, the ordinary is made extraordinary. Within the laboratory of Rigney, boundary-pushing begetter of handmade spirits who slow distills gin with nature's finest oriental botanicals and gunpowder tea. What are these oriental botanicals? 
I'm very curious now. Uh, so this is another part of the gift that uh, Ashley's dad bought me, which is it's a ceramic bottle. So he bought into the marketing, as he said. And uh, I haven't tried it yet. I made a G&T with it. With some lime slut with a, like lime peel, uh, although I don't have a very good thing for getting the lime peel. So I just use like a a fruit peeler or like a peeler, like a vegetable peeler uh, that didn't work so well. So. Uh, let's just try it. That's nice. I don't really get any of the botanical, but I get nice. It all balances out very nicely. To try it again without as much lime juice. I, I unfortunately quartered a lime and put all of that lime juice from that quarter lime in there. Uh, let me tell you something. That's a lot of fucking lime. So yeah, uh, we'll have to try again probably after the break. Uh, speaking of more into the episode, there's that's a bad segue. Uh, let's get into the news. Oh, shit, it's mail time. All right, first up, Ember from the director Sergio Pablos, who also directed Klaus, will not move forward in Netflix due to creative differences and will shop it around to other distributors. All right, so this comes courtesy of Variety. And in reading the Variety article, it felt very... Netflix PR friendly, you know, oh, it wasn't because of money. It was because of creative differences. Well, creative differences can be seen in a multitude of ways, including ideas that cost too much money. So uh, interesting that Netflix doesn't want the next feature from the guy who made their highest rated movie ever. And it's Netflix's only feature, I believe. There might have been something that snuck in at the bottom, but I, as of right now, I believe Klaus is their only feature within the IMDb Top 250. It's an 8.1 out of 10, uh, which is good. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's, it's really good. And Klaus is a really great Christmas movie. I hope everyone watches it every year. But if that's your only movie in the IMDb Top 250, I would assume that you would want something more from the major creative mind behind that movie to make you more stuff. Uh, unless the viewership for Klaus wasn't very good in the first place and he was taking too long and, and the anime, like everything behind the movie was taking too long. I, I don't see why you would do this for creative differences. So this screams cost cutting because every streaming service is currently doing significant cost cutting because because the way the industry is unfolding as of now, revenues and growth are slowly leveling off. Where Netflix, it's leveled off in terms of its subscriber growth. Its revenue growth needed to be buoyed by the ad-supported tier, which we'll get into that in a minute, of why that's, I say, needed to be. And is looking into other ways of nickel and diming customers in order to incrementally increase revenue, which ultimately might lead to revenue loss. So the only other way that you can get around diving revenues is to cut costs. So when you cut costs, you're able to, uh, in theory, profit more. It's a simple. It's a simple answer of business. It's a model that Netflix should have been moving towards as soon as they hit 200 million. Uh, but again, that goes back to the days of where people were saying, oh, Netflix can hit 500 million subscribers worldwide. No questions asked. And there were questions asked. And now everyone's just like, are you sure about that? And very obviously, unless the streaming market massively changes, 500 million is never going to happen. So, uh, yeah, everyone's looking to cut costs. I think HBO's doing it most aggressively. And I wouldn't be shocked to see Netflix take a more HBO Warner Brothers Discovery type of approach where, you know, canceled projects are removed from Netflix. So uh, if there's a way for you to do it, maybe figure out a way to save your pro the projects that Netflix is going to remove some canceled projects that you want to keep seeing. Maybe just a thought could happen. I think it's a last-ditch effort, though. It, I don't think they're as in dire straits of Warner Brothers Discovery, but again, we're going to talk about that here soon. 
All right, our next story. Netflix's ad-supported tier only accounted for 9% of all new signups to the service per U.S.-based analytics firm Antenna. Antenna also says that 57% of subscribers were either new signups or rejoining the service, meaning that the remaining 43% were downgraded from other plans. This is, of course, referring to the ad-supported tier. And finally, a total of 0.2% of all Netflix subscribers utilize the ad-supported tier. Netflix claims that these numbers are not true. So, this is all U.S.-based. That means... I think there's 65 million accounts, Netflix accounts, in the United States alone. Uh, that's according to entertainment strategy guy who does a rough estimate. He said, uh, I believe his math is like 90% of the United States, Canada region is United States subscribers. So 65 million times 0.2% is like 130,000 accounts, which, uh, as I said last week, is not good. That subscriber number needs to be greater. And the fact that there seems to be a slow adoption rate to the new ad supported tier likely continues to force Netflix into bad PR moves for the sake of revenue, like this password sharing crackdown that everyone keeps boogeymaning about, but we have no idea what it actually is. Netflix has tested a few things. I don't know if they've liked any of the results they've had, but we're going to see because we don't know. They haven't announced what it is, so everyone just is fear-mongering, being like, well, the second I have to pay more for my account, I'm canceling my subscription. Which is fair. You're allowed to do whatever you want with your money. That said, technically you've been breaking the terms of service the entire time, just Netflix hasn't cared because... Honestly, Netflix got buoyed by the fact that people were sharing accounts and therefore they can inflate their numbers and make their subscriber per subscriber viewer base look better by having all of these ancillary people chilling on accounts. But that being said, let's wait and see what this password sharing crackdown, which there's no better way to say that I hate I hate that phrase because there's not going to be a crackdown. It's not like, hey, every person who's sharing a password, you can't do that. If you're logged into different places, you're, you're everyone's got to just sign up for a new account. No. What it, is, what it likely will be and what they tested was uh, an additive to it. I think in some South American countries, they did like $2 per additional household, which like isn't horrendous. But there are people who are going to say, well, $2 per month is too much for me. Uh, again, your finances are your finances. But that said, you know, even if, for instance, our show, we have three households all under one account. My, my household, Caleb's household, and my parents' household. That would still put us to around $25 with tax per month. And that's for five people to check out whatever they want at any time on on netflix uh, which is the the price of one and a half movie tickets so you know i i find netflix to still be a tremendous value because i watch it more than anything else uh, mainly because of the show but i feel like if you're watching enough tv and enough movies it doesn't really matter you know, you're you're getting hours and hours worth of entertainment value out of watching Netflix. And for you to say, well, I don't find it worth it. Well, then what's worth it? Like if you if you amortize per per hour, if you watch 20 hours of Netflix per month and you have the most expensive tier. Well, then how is a dollar an hour not worth it for you? Uh. Part of me thinks that, like, yes, people should be mindful of where they spend their money, but also people should be mindful of opportunity cost. Are you going to tell me you're going to watch that much more shit on a different streaming service, which ultimately everybody should be doing, unless you're like us and do just a Netflix podcast where all you do is watch Netflix and all you do is review Netflix stuff. But every month, 
or every couple of months, you should be moving on to a new streaming service and, you know, watching whatever's been banked up since the last time you had the streaming services and canceling. That's the beauty of streaming. And that's the thing that everyone always forgets. Oh, it's just like cable. It's just like cable. No, it's not. Cable is so much more difficult to cancel. Streaming services, you can be like, I just want three months of this thing. I'll fuck off and then go to, like, Hulu. And then, uh, oh, I've watched all the things I want to watch on Hulu. Now go to HBO Max. Oh, I watched everything I watched on HBO Max. I want to watch on HBO Max. Let's go to Prime and Disney Channel. Or Disney Plus or Disney Channel. What the fuck? This is ultimately a very consumer-friendly model for consuming product. The problem is that everyone has this sense of FOMO where, oh, the new big Star Wars series is out and I'm not watching with everybody else because I don't have Disney Plus. Oh, the new Stranger Things season is out. I'm not watching it because I don't have Netflix. Oh, the new Boys season is out. I'm not watching it because everybody, because I don't have Prime. I mean, if you care about FOMO, then yeah, this is an awful time for you. But if you're somebody who has, you know, a modicum of respect for their time and a modicum of control over impulses, you don't have to have every streaming service at any time. You could just have a couple and you'll be satiated with enough content most of the time. It was a big, long rant. Ultimately, what I'm trying to say is uh, the ad supported tier is not doing a very good job and prices are going to continue to increase uh, as long as the ad supported tier does not do well. Again, we are almost two months into the ad supported tier and we have no idea what it's going to look like and how quickly Netflix adapts. They might give this thing a whole year before they change strategy. Now, I think the ultimate problem with the way Netflix has approached everything they're doing with the uh, ad supported tier plus password sharing crackdown, I think that was very reactionary and knee jerk to what happened earlier this year where they were losing subs and wanted to increase revenue. And so they thought, let's just nick continue to nickel and dime people and then potentially we'll raise prices if we have to. And I think that is a bad solution to the issue of people saying, hi, your service costs too much to me. And I don't want to use it if you keep raising prices. So I don't know what the eventual solution is for Netflix. I feel like a price increase will be coming within the next 18 months if the ad supported tier doesn't do anything. All right. Our final story is that Stranger Things is receiving an anime style spinoff currently titled Stranger Things Kyoto. According to Casey Moore of What's on Netflix. Thank you for the scoop, Casey. Uh, the series has been in production since at least early 2021 and will be about six hours long. Six hours long. Logline. An encounter with the Upside Down evolves into a grand adventure for video game-loving twin brothers living on the outskirts of 1980s Tokyo. So this is going to be a case of the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. In theory, Stranger Things is a massive IP for Netflix, but we aren't really sure if that's the case, or if it's just, you know, the characters we already have formed bonds and relationships with, if they're what's make, if they are what makes Stranger Things popular. I, I, I are a general contributor to the overall popularity of the show. So how much does Stranger Things mean for a casual viewer? We're going to find out. And you have to compare that to the fact that animated series on Netflix thus far don't perform extremely well. You have animated movies like uh, The Sea Beast. I'm trying to think of other... Wendell and Wild really didn't do well either. So, like, you have some kids' movies that perform reasonably well. But if you look at the viewing numbers behind animated series, the best one so far has been Arcane. And I have no idea if that's ever coming back for a second season. I feel like it should, just based off of the fact that it charted at all in the Netflix English TV series category of their global top 10 it charted there and you don't say that about 
any animated shows whatsoever. Uh, there's very few that perform up to that level, which is why when people say, well, why didn't you do uh, an animated version of Cowboy Bebop? Why don't you do more animated versions of stuff? Those are cheaper and, you know, less corny. People actually watch the live action stuff. For some reason, people have this thing in their mind. There's something in general audience minds where they see animation and they go, well, that's not for me then. Despite the fact that, you know, you have things like Family Guy, The Simpsons, uh, Bob's Burgers, all that are extremely popular. But for some reason, Netflix just can't get it through to people that there's adult animation on Netflix that is for everybody and not just, you know, a niche audience. Uh, I looked at JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Stone Ocean. That wound up in TV for non-English. And that didn't do too hot. I think it only got like 8 million hours. And the final part of this, of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, I think was, what, 14 episodes? So that's roughly four and a half hours of content, plus whatever else for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Stone Ocean. That didn't chart very well in, in non-English. And it's, it's an anime that people were clamoring for, and it doesn't perform. So what gives here? Is it going to be the Stranger Things IP that brings some focus onto the animation side of Netflix, at least in terms of adult animation? Or does the animation side bring it down, and therefore we just continue to have more and more data that animated spinoffs, two things, that are adult properties aren't working because we had something like this with the Witcher, which with the Witcher nightmare of the wolf, which didn't perform extremely well. I think it was only viewed. I want to say, and don't quote me on this because I'm probably wrong. I want to say about 30 million hours viewed, which is not very strong for a movie. So this is a low risk potentially high reward for Netflix, but it's the test case now. Does animation actually matter or does the IP matter? I'm very intrigued to find out. And that's it for news. That's also it for downstream. Uh, there's the new trailer for that 90s show. And I don't really feel like watching that. I feel like I got enough out of the teaser to really care. Uh, I think all this showed was like Donna, Eric, Kelso, Jackie, and Fez. No hide, of course, because Danny Masterson is a sexual assaulter, allegedly. We'll see if I care. I, I want to like the show. I, I really do actually like that 70s show, but... We'll see if this captures any of that magic. We'll find out. It, ultimately, it seems like a, you know, a reboot sequel where it's just like, hey, remember all of these characters? Well, that's the only people who are going to get any kind of notoriety whatsoever from the show. We don't give a shit about the new characters. Fuck them. And then for quick hits, nothing for quick hits because we spent a lot of the week watching Christmas stuff which you can hear about all in our Christmas episodes, so go listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, I know it's past Christmas now, but if you want something for the future, you know, future Christmases, or you're one of those weirdos who does Christmas in July, go for it. Listen to that, and uh, only watch Murderville. Who Murdered Santa? A Murderville murder mystery. Uh, and with that, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back from that break, I'll be reviewing. Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, a movie that I saw two months ago and rewatched again today. The Netflix and Swill podcast is brought to you by our wonderful patrons, Gerald Morris, Bill Sutton, Ashley the Bubby Gorski, Ben Kiefer, Paul Prezula, the Mike Rula, Daniel Henderson, Julio Oliveira, Jimmy Delarosa, Chris Yaney, Nate Wade, Alan Gallarisi, Casey Moore, Jason the Nerdrovert, Sam the Hurlahe Boy Hurley, Nick Haskins, David Powell, and my mom. 
If you'd like to join that illustrious list of patrons, visit patreon.com slash netflixandswill. Or, if you'd like to support us without spending any money, you can share our podcast on social media, tell a friend, or review the podcast on any podcatcher. It'd be greatly appreciated. Now, back to your regularly scheduled banter. Welcome back, everybody. It's time to get into our main review topic for the week, which is Knives Out, a glass onion mystery, which I will never get right in a million years unless I'm staring at it in front of my face. No, it's Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. So, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery is written and directed by Ryan Johnson, stars Daniel Craig, Edward Norton, Kate Hudson, uh, so many more, Dave Bautista, Janelle Monet, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Jessica Henwick, Madeline Klein. Those are the big ones. Uh, it is a 7.4 out of 10 on IMDb. Famed Southern detective Benoit Blanc travels to Greece for his latest case. That explains nothing. And that's actually one of the most like perfect, beautiful uh, ways to describe this movie because it doesn't give anything away. So, initial thoughts. Uh, I really liked Glass Onion. I don't think it's as good as Knives Out. I think it was a lesser sequel, but I felt like upon its first watch, it hit me better. And on rewatch, all it did was maintain. It didn't improve. Knives Out on a rewatch is very rewarding just to see how everything works. I think Daniel Craig is great, as per usual. Janelle Monae is fantastic. Uh, I really enjoy the dynamic and commentary that this movie has of hey these super famous people who are extremely powerful or powerful in different degrees uh, who you think have nothing in common with each other are actually way closer than you think we have someone who's a scientist played by leslie odom jr we have a politician played by Catherine hahn we have a model slash fashionista played by kate hudson we have a men's rights Twitch slash YouTube streamer in Dave Batista. And again, you would assume that you throw all of these people. And by the way, Catherine Hunt's politician is left wing. You would assume you throw all those people together and they all hate each other. And to a degree, there is a level in it of animosity. But you find out that ultimately the powerful in society run much closer than you think. That's why when you see pictures of, like, Hillary Clinton with Donald Trump pre the 2016 election, it doesn't shock me, because that just seems to be the way society is run. Just It just is. And then, of course, you have Edward Norton as Miles Braun, who many have considered to be an Elon Musk type. And believe me, I definitely see that. And the movie goes to great lengths of building up the mystique to Miles Braun, kind of like in a very similar way to the Elon Musk, you know, real life ascension into what he is now to a degree. Now, of course, I don't want to get into spoilers yet as this just came out, but this does a good job of deconstructing who Elon Musk is and what he is about. But again, through a veil of it being a character played by Edward Norton. The motif of the movie is all about the glass onion, and it actually represents a massive metaphor within the movie and for many of its characters, where on the surface, you think you're looking through something complicated, but you can see right through it. And as you continue to see right through it, you see at, at its core, there's nothing complicated about it. And that appears multiple times throughout the movie, showing that, you know, despite everything seemingly being more complicated than it is, it's actually way simpler and way dumber than what you think. And my ultimate problem with Glass Onion, like Knives Out, is that it's not a fair murder mystery. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't allow you, the viewer, to digest clues at the same time as the characters within the movie itself. 
there's information given to you afterwards that completely changes how you view the entire movie. And that's fine. I think, you know, for a murder mystery, there do need to be twists and turns and all that kind of stuff, and not all the information needs to be given, but I want to be challenged. I want to be guessing alongside of Benoit Blanc. I want to be able to say, oh, it's this person because of because of this, 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 and this evidence. But when the movie changes how you view it about halfway through, similar to Knives Out, it just feels unrewarding and it makes you feel like you have wasted a little bit of your time. Now that's fine. The the build up to it isn't as good as Knives Out, which I'm going to continually compare this movie to because to be fair, it's a sequel to Knives Out. So you need to compare in some kind of ways. But the build is lackluster to a degree. When the the actual mystery gets going and when whenever the plot actually starts advancing, I'm invested. I'm interested. But again, it leaves that layer of hollowness where I want more out of the movie because I want to be invested, just like the characters are, in solving the mystery of what's going on. But when you withhold information from me so I don't know it until the second before a reveal happens, it doesn't take me out of the movie, but it makes me feel less invested in more of these Ryan Johnson movies. Now, of course, I want to see more of this, and hopefully Ryan Johnson does lean more on that murder-she-wrote kind of formula where, as evidence is pre presented, you're able to make determinations upon that evidence. You know, kind of like Murderville. Th this is what I want. This is where I want Ryan Johnson to take cues from Murderville. And nowhere else. I don't need improv. But I want I want information presented to be presented to everybody at the same time, so that way we can all have our fun guessing what's going on. This is a nitpick, of course. I will 100% agree to that. This is all based off of my taste and, and the kind of murder mysteries that I like. So if you're somebody who just enjoys the ride, you'll get over that very quickly. And with that, I'm going to get into spoilers. So if you don't want to be spoiled by uh, this review, go ahead, skip forward. I'll put timestamps in the episode so that way you know when to hit, when you're hitting the recruit if you're interested in that. Otherwise, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank Let you. me just play the ending for you. No, no, I don't want to see how it ends. Okay, I could describe it. Um, imagine you're in a room. No, no, like no, 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 I don't want to know how it ends. I haven't seen the beginning uh, yeah, yet. Yeah, but the ending is awesome. So if I could Son just play the bitch, this is what you always do. You always spoil stuff uh, for me. No, I don't. And if I could just play the ending for you real quick, then we'll discuss that. Motherfucker, you always spoil everything before I get a chance okay, to see Okay, you sound like a crazy person right now. So, Benoit Blanc is invited to this island under mysterious circumstances. Or at least it's, that's how it's presented. And uh, begins to get close to this inner circle of friends who are all clutching at the grasp of this one billionaire who has financed all of their moves to the point where he is so untouchable to them that they have to basically do whatever this man asks. Because if they don't, well, he can destroy them. And we see that when... Uh, Janelle Monet's character of Andy is trying to get control of the company Alpha, which is the company that uh, Miles Braun owns and operates. She is a 50-50 partner or seemingly 50-50 partner, some kind of arrangement where she can get full control of the company should some provision be met. Uh, basically, the provision being that she is the founder and innovator of the company's central idea. And she is uh, basically sold out by all of her friends who she brought in the Miles Braun to their, this friend group. She's the one who said, let's get Miles involved and let's all use Miles and leverage Miles and, and all build each other up into something spectacular. And everyone becomes spectacular, and Miles is able to use that to his advantage. So, using that to his advantage, he's able to completely remove Andy from 
any kind of say within the company of Alpha. And that's seemingly the backdrop of the entire movie is that Andy has come to this island, to this island where everyone on it has betrayed her, with the exception of Benoit Blanc, to cause tension, unease. But as is Ryan Johnson, he pulls the rug from under us. And we find out that Andy is dead and instead has a twin, which has someone like Ben Shapiro up in arms because he feels it's too tropey. I think it's perfectly tropey. Identical twins are, yeah, a very cheap way to get out of stuff, but it causes for great performances. And that's what actually makes Janelle Monae great is the majority of the time you think she's just Andy. You think she's this self-assured, confident woman. And it turns out that she is a school teacher from Alabama just playing a bit that her and her sister created when they were young. Rich bitch, I think is what they what they call that character. And, you know, a- you know Helen shows up and she's like, yeah, I- I've listened to Andy talk and she talks just like rich bitch. And so for her to portray herself as a vulnerable woman who has gone through the loss of her sister being killed before the events of the movie. And now push, positioning that into being somebody who can orchestrate a takedown of a multi-billionaire. It, it's a fantastic performance from presenting herself as this strong, assured woman to someone who's vulnerable and unsure of herself, but ultimately is fantastic at what she does and in, in getting information out of people. I really do love her performance, and it's one of those performances where I don't care about the Oscars, but if she's nominated, I'll pay attention. I'll pay attention to what she's doing and what's what's going on there. So the story unravels. We find that Andy actually has has died before the events of the movie, and we need to figure out who did it. Now, of course, also during the events of the movie, uh, Dave Bautista's character, Cody Duke, I think? I'm not looking at this, I promise. Uh, it also passes away, also dies due to mysterious circumstances. And so it's about finding out who killed him. So about halfway through the movie, the curtains pull back where you find out that Helen is Andy and Andy is Helen in this movie. You find out that Benoit Blanc was invited to the island by Andy. And this is where a, a lot more layers unravel again like an onion. But when you look at the center, it's obvious as to what what happened and, and who, who did what as information is unraveled. We find out that the, the crux of Miles Braun's argument that he is the basically the sole founder of Alpha is that he wrote out the company's business plan and business model on a napkin, on a napkin, a cocktail napkin at the Glass Onion Bar. Well, in reality, it was Andy who wrote all of this on the cocktail napkin. And they were, Andy was unable to find this napkin until after the events of the trial. So now that she has brand new evidence to show that she is the one who did come up with the company's business plan, innovation strategy, now she has a case. And now Miles Braun has to be the one who kills her because... He's the only one that loses out of this situation. He's the only one. He loses all of his billions, all of his influence. So he has to go kill her, to silence her. But of course, he doesn't pay attention to anything Andy says. All he cares about is himself, so he forgets that she has a twin. And so this twin is able to infiltrate the island with Benoit Blanc's assistance and cause some mayhem. And eventually this comes to a climax where and where Helen does find the cocktail napkin. Now, and of course, Miles Braun burns the, the cocktail napkin. So he's like, well, there's no proof now. You have nothing. Up until the point where Helen seemingly loses her mind, but is ultimately crystal clearly focused uh, through what I think was supposed to be a comedic element where she's drinking hard kombucha and alcohol that makes her seem way more capable than she is or gives her this false sense of confidence or not really false sense of confidence, but like this imitation level confidence 
you know, like imitation crab, where it's kind of like crab, but it's not really like crab, where she uses this alcohol for liquid courage, and it makes her into this strong, capable woman instead of being this unsure, you know, very timid woman that we saw approach Benoit Blanc in the first place. And this is where she finally is able to expose Braun for the the fraud that he is. And and Blanc also figures it out because he's using because Braun uses words that don't actually exist. And but they sound like they exist or he's using words that sound right, but definitely aren't co- correct at all. I think he's, he says the word refraction when he means reflection. You know, this it shows that this man is an idiot. He doesn't actually know what he's talking about. He's lucked into this position off the back of everybody else in front of him. And of course, that gets you somewhere. You know, if you're able to to fake it till you make it, which is something that Braun does say in the movie, you that can pay dividends. I mean, that's what got everybody else and everybody in the group to be as good as they are. You know, he, he was able to leverage uh, Cody Duke into into YouTube deals. He was able to move Birdie J, played by Kate Hudson, into like the move her into like this fashion mogul. Uh, you know, it's move Catherine Hunt's politician character from you know somebody who fails at the local level to now Connecticut governor. I'm not saying that Edward Norton's character is a complete idiot. But I feel like the movie goes a bit further into saying he's an idiot than he really is, because what he ultimately is, is an effective con man. And I don't feel like effective con men are stupid. I feel like effective con men are just really good at portraying competence as his con and pushing that into other, other people and saying, well, I believe this, so you should believe it. I don't think those people are dumb. I think they're dangerous. But I don't think they're dumb. I don't think Edward Norton's Miles Braun is as dumb as everyone thinks he is, but he's relatively dumb. And eventually, Helen is able to get everybody to kind of turn against Miles in one way or another. In this very symbolic gesture at the end where after Miles burns the the napkin. She goes around to each of them and says, "Well, who's going to say that I who's going to say that Miles that I saw Miles leaving Andy's apartment the day of her death? I saw what was on the cocktail napkin. I I saw this." And she looks at all of them and says, "You will not lie for you'll lie for a lie, but you won't lie for the truth." And of course, at the end, she's able to convince all of them to lie for the truth. Or what we perceive as the truth, because for all of his ability, Benoit Blanc is able to weave a fantastic tale, and we just kind of believe it. And that's actually something I would like to see Ryan Johnson really attack, not attack, but like really explore in the next movie, is that maybe Blanc is fallible. Maybe he is able to weave tales so good that everyone just believes them, but in, in reality, they're not actually factual. And it doesn't have to be all the time, but having something where Blanc is able to have to overcome his own sense of ego, which ultimately he doesn't really show that much. Like he's very, he is a level of humility that you don't really see amongst genius detectives. And this is the point I saw on Twitter. I can't remember exactly who said it on Twitter, but Blanc is a very genuine, gentle person. When we look at Sherlock 2014, you know, the BBC show, and how much of an asshole that character is, and how much we say that that character is an asshole, but he's a genius, so we just let it go. Benoit Blanc isn't like that. Benoit Blanc is very much the gentleman detective, as they, I believe they said in, in Knives Out. And they mean gentleman in a proper way, not just like a man, but a man who shows empathy and care for others. And that's the true beauty of his character. And I love that. So the movie ends with Helen getting her, her ultimate revenge on Miles Braun and uh, all of Miles Braun's confidants turning against him. And 
again, that seems to be mirroring real life with with Elon Musk to a degree. Now, there are people that there are still those people that are attached to his hip and maybe eventually they'll remove themselves from his hip. But still. I enjoyed the movie. I'm not sure when I'll rewatch it. I've already rewatched it because, you know, I watched it two months ago, thanks to Gerald from Two Piece on a Podcast. But again, it's not as strong as Knives Out on a rewatch, but it is on a first watch better than Knives Out. I think Janelle Monet is fantastic. I think the movie looks beautiful. Benoit Blanc is, again, just a beauty of a character. Love him. And I want more. I just wish it was a bit more of a traditional mystery where it played fair instead of playing with how it presents information. I want to be able to solve the mystery alongside everybody else. Just give me that opportunity. So with that, I give Glass Onion Knives Out Mystery a 4 out of 5. I really do implore you to watch it if you haven't already. I don't have the viewing statistics yet. I will have them later as of day of release. And I'll have something up on the website uh, under Dan's data dump, which is something I'll talk about towards the end of the episode. All right. And that will now bring us to our second main review topic for the week. And by us, I mean, of course, me is The Recruit starring Noah Centineo. It's created by Alexi Howley. And I'm curious what Alexi has worked on outside of this. Uh, oh my executive producer, showrunner, 85 episodes of the rookie. That's the Nathan Fillion show. So that actually explains something, uh, body of proof, state of affairs, the following castle. Okay. Okay. So Lexi's worked on a lot of stuff, uh, supervising producer for body of proof writer on the rookie, the training day series. Okay. Very interesting career for Lexi. As I said, this follows uh, Noah Centineo as a lawyer at the CIA who gets entangled in dangerous international power politics when a former asset threatens to expose the nature of her long-term relationship with the agency. Uh, also stars Laura Haddock as Max Meladze, who is that former asset. Uh, you'll know Laura Haddock mostly from Guardians of the Galaxy. She plays Qu- Peter Quill's mother. Meredith Quill and uh, Noah Centineo, you know, mostly from the to all the boys I love before series. And as I was, as I said multiple times in talking about the show, I wanted to see Noah Centineo in something that isn't a romantic comedy or a teen romance movie or whatever. I wanted to see him stretch his legs and become like an, a well-rounded actor. Cause if you look at his, his filmography outside of, Apparently being in Black Adam, uh, he, he's done just basically those teen heartthrob romance movies where he is the teen heartthrob. And overall, I think this show is f- solid. I don't, there are good moments to it. I think it lingers a bit too long. And I think it focuses on some characters that shouldn't be focused on at certain times. Other times, there's fu- it's fine for them to be focused on. But for the most part, it, need- it should be focusing on this relationship between Max Meladze and Noah Centineo's... Oh, what the hell is his character's name? That is a great question, Dan. I'm glad you asked. Uh, Owen Hendricks. Now, of course, Owen is... I think, he- I think he's 24 in the show. So he has... A couple roommates, uh, Hannah and and Terrence. Terrence, best best friend. Love Terrence. Uh, need more Terrence. Hannah is this complicated relationship with Owen, where she is a former girlfriend of Owen, so they're former lovers and also roommates. But they're no longer lovers. They're they've been exes for at least two years, but they live together. Which is one of those scenarios where I just was like, the fuck is this new age bullshit? Showing my boomerness, of course. So that was weird and difficult for me to get over because it's just like, what what fucking person lives with their ex? 
I, I know I see like this co-parenting shit where people and their ex and their 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 current like partner are, are, are working together to raise kids. And this is like, OK, fine. But I look at this shit and I'm just like, what the fuck? That is a mess. That is a mess of a household. So Owen is brand new to the CIA, like literally brand new, like could not be greener. And the way they portray the CIA in this show is that it's every man for themselves. And also information brokering comes through romantic relationships. So on the first point, Owen has two people who are antagonistic to a degree, one more than the other, in Violet Ebner and Lester Kitchens, uh, played by Artie Mon and Colton Dunn, who I was very excited to see in the show. I I watched uh, the old Rooster Teeth movie. Oh, what the fuck is it? It's the one where it, it, there was supposed to be like this, this super like Voltron-style armor, and it gets stuck on four different people, and Colton Dunn's in it, and he's very funny. Uh, so I was excited to see Colton Dunn in the movie. So the so Lester and Violet's relationship with Owen is almost exclusively antagonistic, because again, it's every person for themselves in the CIA, to the point where other agents will attempt to sabotage other agents, and we see Violet in particular. Eventually, Lester and Lester and Owen get to like do some bro bonding in uh, Lebanon, which I wish they explored that a bit more. It felt like they came back and respected each other a bit too much immediately. I felt like they, they, they needed to spend a bit more time together in order for me to really buy that. Not friendship, but like mutual respect to the point where Lester won't fuck with Owen anymore. But Violet hates Owen, thinks Owen's always out to get her, but he's, I think Jen Owen is genuinely trying to be nice. It's just that because of, I don't want to say PTSD because it's currently going on because of the way the CIA is. So just traumatic stress disorder. Uh, Violet is thinking, oh, he gives me a, shit a shitty assignment because he hates me. But in reality, he just wants to be nice. So she'll get off his back. And then you contrast that with uh, Owen's relationship with Amelia Salazar, who is another attorney, and uh, he trades, you know, he trades information, tips, guidance for romantic relations and sex. You know, they they go on a, a couple dates in the show, and then mostly they're just there for sex, which is. Again, an interesting, an interesting dynamic. And Amelia is by far my favorite person at the CIA. Uh, he also, there's also one more person uh, by the name of Giannis Ferber, uh, who is just either on speed, cocaine, Adderall, anything that keeps him awake. But aside from their boss, like there's nobody really else that I really care about. But yeah, Amelia was great. I I really enjoyed her character. I, I, I enjoyed what they did with her. I at some point felt like she was going to turn on Owen. She never did. And I'm glad about that. I never needed her to turn on Owen. Uh, but I feel like eventually she might. Who knows? And then that brings us to the central plot of Owen and, and Max and their relationship. So Owen being green and uh finding this gray mail which is basically like people who send in information being like hey i'm gonna expose this thing because i had this information unless you help me do this thing that's gray mail that's gray mail not gray man that's that's ryan ryan gosling so owen follows up believing it to be a credible threat and it is uh max Meladze is a ruthless, ruthless Belarusian-born uh, Russian mobster who knows way too much because of just who she is. She's, uh, she's an interesting, complex character that you never really fully understand her motivations. Owen's motivations are always 
very linear. He wants to do the best he can because he wants to impress people, but he also wants to do the right thing because he has a moral compass. Max is very chaotic. Like, she's chaotic neutral. Like, if you look at the D&D type alignment chart, Noah, Owen is chaotic neutral or chaotic good because he, he'll bend the rules when he needs to in order to get what he wants. But it's always serving like a, a good purpose or a greater purpose. Max is very chaotic neutral, where she is willing to cause any kind of chaos that puts her ahead. She's, she even says multiple times, I am willing to fuck you over in order for me to go home to Belarus. I think their relationship is interesting, and it shows Owen that he can't just rely on the fact that his instincts tell him to just be good. You've selected yourself to be in the CIA. You will work in the gray. You have to be gray to work in the CIA. And that's I think that's what Max shows a lot, is that as good as you want to be, you can't be all good working for the CIA. And I, I think it's interesting to watch that character be corrupted. It does need a bit, a little bit more exploration into Owen's past. We only get really one big flashback as to Owen and Hannah's relationship. And we see that he's kind of a goofball. He's kind of a screw off. But here he's just driven in the show. Driven to a degree. He's still, he still has his reservations. He still has his compass, which is fine. But I feel like we needed more past development for him. You know, show where he show where he's came from. Show where he's came from. Show where he's come from. Show us where he is now. Contrast those. I'm interested to see that part of the show. But overall, for the recruit, my ultimate problem is that we spend too much time on Hannah and Terrence. And in not good ways. Because in the final couple episodes, they actively go help Owen. Which, in theory, blows his cover and really looks bad for him because he's supposed to be not a secret agent because he's a lawyer, but he's supposed to be covert to a degree. And wherever people, if people know where he is, well, then fuck. Why, why is he trying to be covert if he just know exactly where he is at any time, in any, at any moment? It doesn't make any sense. I, I feel like the last two episodes are actually some of the weakest episodes because they focus on this Hannah, Terrence, Owen relationship that doesn't really need to be there. Yet they can be worried about him, but the fact that they're actively inserting themselves into that really drags away from the story and it drags away from any kind of big word incoming, verisimilitude that the show had. And it's not to mention that sometimes the show wants to present itself as a comedy, but doesn't give itself a chance to breathe those comedic aspects in. It just kind of is go, go, go. Yes, there are comedic aspects. The, the Giannis character is a bit funny, but he has mostly serious things to say, and just his funniness comes from the fact that he is strung out uh, way too hyper, way too alert, and way too jaded for his current job. So ultimately, the recruit, I don't want to say is a mess. I think it knows what it's doing, but it needs to focus in on things that are actually important. I get that you want to have the love interest in Hannah still existing in the show, but there needs to be a level of she needs to know what she's in to the show. And I don't feel like there is that level. All I feel like is that she just does whatever she does because her parents are rich. They're power brokers in, in the Washington, D.C. sphere. Which is fine, and she can leverage that. But the fact that she actively inserts herself into Owen's shit doesn't really endure, endear me to her. All it says is that she's not willing to respect boundaries that Owen wants to kind of set up. So. The last thing I want to mention is the action. The action's solid. Uh, Max Milazzi gets most of the action scenes, and in fact, she's a, an ass kicker. 
I would love to see Laura Haddock in more sh- in more action oriented stuff. Now, I think she also is very good dramatically. In fact, I I ultimately want to see Laura Haddock get her own show, where she can be that charismatic lead that also was able to do a bit of action. Now, of course, she probably won't do any of the action. It'll probably be a stunt double, but still, the show never really had any issues convincing me that she was that Max Milante was a threat at any time that she wanted to be. So that's all I have to say on the recruit. I think it's a solid show. I don't feel like you need to be taking it seriously. I don't think it takes itself seriously. I don't feel like it understands fully what it is. I want to see it focus in on Owen and what he's going through and supplement it with Hannah and Terrence and the things that are going on in the agency. I don't need so much antagonizing between everyone in the agency and Owen. The the interesting power dynamics of utilizing romantic relationships, I think that needs to be further explored because that's that's an interesting work dynamic that I don't really think we see where you leverage, you know, I don't want to say sexual favors, but you know, appearances for information, guidance, that kind of stuff. I felt like that was interesting and a bit underexplored because we only ever got one person that really leveraged that against Owen. That was Amelia. And again, I like Amelia. But I want to see more of it. Show me more. Give me more. Potentially, not not even just women, potentially men. Men, uh, Additional men would be great. Like, having, having Owen have to wrestle with sexuality to a degree would be an interesting wrinkle to to throw into the show. I'm interested in that. But overall, I think it's a solid show. I don't know if I run out and go watch it. I don't know if I go run out and tell everybody, hey, absolutely check this out. You know, this, this seven hours of your time is worth it. But you know, we're going through some some holidays. People got time off. If you're out of stuff to watch, maybe give it a shot. I think there's there's enough charm here that'll get you through it. And maybe a newfound respect slash appreciation for Noah Centineo and what he does. I think he's actually pretty good in this show as the guy who really needs a guiding light. So yeah, I recommend it. It's a soft recommend, but I still recommend it. If we did it, like three and a, 3.25 out of 5, but as of now, I'll just give it a 3 out of 5. Check it out if you want. If you don't, I understand. If this kind of show isn't your bag, I get it. And with that, the show is coming to a close. I want to thank you all for listening to the show. Uh, next week, we'll be reviewing The Witcher, Blood Origin. Uh, it is four episodes. And basically, all the reason we're going to be watching just that and reviewing that is to give ourselves enough time. There's likely going to be very little news because it's the end of the year. There's going to be very few trailers because it's the end of the year. Fine. We're giving ourselves a little bit of time to catch up on things. Make sure we've watched everything for the Swillies coming up the week afterwards, which is our, you know, best of 2022 episode where we're going to talk about, like, best shows you should watch, best movies you should watch, that kind of stuff. So if all of that sounds interesting to you, please hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher of choice and also visit netflixandswill.com if you want to stop shop for all things Netflix and Swill. If you want to follow us on Twitter, that's where that's the best place to find us through all those links. Uh, and I promised I'd bring it up. Uh, Dan's data dump. So I've been following Netflix viewing statistics from the Netflix Global Top 10 site for quite a while now. I've compiled a lot of spreadsheets, and I wanted to kind of write about it. They're not going to be long form. I might do like one long form piece a month, and long form being like a few thousand words, nothing crazy. I'm not a, I'm not a writer. I'm a speaker. I'm a guy who talks shit, and I'm a guy who looks at numbers for a living. So yeah, I'm going to break down some numbers, but but yeah, if you could check out Dan's Data Dump, it's at netflixandswill.com slash dansdatadump. I'll put the link in the description. Uh, I put up something as like a test to like, hey, how do I feel about the workload into doing this kind of thing? I didn't feel like it was too crazy. I feel like, you know, 
storylines out of the global top 10 write itself enough. But if you want to check that out, if, if, if Netflix viewing statistics and what they mean interests you, give it a shot. That's all I ask. Uh, also check out at netflixinsu.com two peas on a podcast gerald's doing stuff also check out the the golden piece which are gerald's award ceremony for his best of 2022 i think it's exclusively film but gerald just watch some more tv it's really easy to just watch tv rabbiters tv podcast actually has veep coming out sometime this month check that out we might, her and I might do something in January. We might not. We're going to figure it out. We're going to figure out what we want to do. If we want to do anything at all. And then Apple Teeny Plus, whenever they, you know, decide they want to record something. I'm willing to pimp them out. Do your things, kings. And also thank you to Space Weather for the use of our theme song, Bitter. Which is probably how Caleb is going to feel after missing out on this entire episode and having to hear me for 120 minutes. 120 minutes? That's not right. That's two hours. Uh, I'm a little drunk. It's about 80 minutes. 80 minutes raw. I'll give you guys the behind the scenes. It's about 80 minutes of raw audio. You're probably only going to hear about like 65. That sounds about right. So yeah, I've been talking for a lot. I want to stop talking. My voice hurts a little bit. Despite the fact that I've been podcasting for over six years now, I'm, I've never really done a solo episode. I was actually very encouraged by it i felt pretty good going through it so there may never be another solo episode ever again but you know if you like the solo episode let me know if you like listening to my voice for some reason good for you probably should replace your ears though but thank you for listening thank you for checking out the netflix and soul podcast and until next week this is dan saying we'll see you next tuesday Netflix and Swill is an independent podcast. As such, we believe in the scrappy underdogs of the podcast world. If you're an indie podcast and would like us to run your promo on our show, please contact us. The little guys need to stick together. If you enjoy what we're doing, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and telling a friend. The more we grow, the better the show will be. Thank you for being part of the Netflix and Swill family.